Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. This is John McMahon from the Graduate Center CUNY and Center for Global Ethics and Politics at Graduate Center, one of your co-hosts for the channel. Today, I'm joined by Laura Schoberg, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Florida, to talk about her book, Gender, War, and Conflict, out from Polity Press in 2014. Arguing, as Schoberg writes on page 17, that, quote, gender makes war and war makes gender, end quote, The book explores the way that gendered structures in international politics in many ways make war possible. It's a really fascinating, in-depth book. There's also an incredibly accessible primer to feminist international relations of the field and to Schoberg's analysis of gender and war and conflict specifically. In the conversation, we talk about questions of what it means to look at international politics and at war and conflict through a gendered lens. We discuss the various ways that when masculinities, women, femininities, and gender queerness all play a role in, in shaping war. And in the interview and in the book as well, Schoberg illustrates the argument with the number of examples from history, from pop culture, from existing work in feminist international relations, and from other fields. In addition to walking us through the arguments in the book itself, does with great aplomb. Schoberg also discusses and offers some, I think, really interesting insights about the gendered politics and processes of knowledge production in academic political science and academic international relations specifically. So I hope you enjoy our interview, and I strongly urge all of you to go out and buy this book and read it for yourselves. And now, here's my interview with Laura Schoberg. Joining me now is Laura Schoberg, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Florida and the author of Gender, War, and Conflict, Out from Polity in 2014. Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Um, so we perhaps I'd like to ask you to start with the traditional question here on the New Books Network, which is telling us some about your own intellectual trajectory and how you came to write this particular book. Um. I guess that I got into international relations in part through policy debate and in part for some very interesting professors as an undergrad. Uh, And the combination of those made me interested in the ways in which feminist theory of international relations could be applied in practice, uh, which is why I made the decision to go work with Ann Tickner in graduate school. And that's my research agenda Broadly, I guess if you can give it one sentence, is thinking about the ways in which feminist theory and increasingly queer theory would make us think differently about different phenomena in and theories of global politics, particularly in the security realm. Um, so this book is a combination of kind of a compilation of my previous work trying to make it more accessible and trying to push forward kind of a feminist theory, queer theory, alliance, and security studies. And I certainly think that kind of as a compilation, that makes sense and making it more accessible. And so maybe as a way into the book, 
Could you talk a little bit about the audiences you envision reading it? Because it strikes me as not just useful for scholars, but also for people in the policy world or a very readable, accessible book for undergraduates, too. Well, I think that's kind of what Polity tries to do with their books, right, is that the audience, they want them to be useful for scholars, but the audience isn't scholars. The audience is students or kind of people in the policy world who might be interested in these questions. Um, So that was actually the biggest challenge to me uh, about writing this book was trying to both write what I wanted to write and make it accessible. At the end of the day, though, I think that it made what I wanted to write better. Hopefully, knock on wood. Yeah. Um, You know, and so I think that the audience is kind of broad, non-specialist, but people who want to think in a complicated way about this sort of thing. Right. Now, in the book, could you maybe talk a little bit about what you mean by gender, perhaps for those in our audience who aren't necessarily uh, familiar with feminist theory or feminist international relations more specifically? You know, I think that the best operational explanation of gender that I've heard and been able to consistently use is Laura Shepard's. And she talks about it as a noun, a verb, and a logic. And so gender as a noun is both kind of the sexes that we are assigned, male and female, and the maleness and femaleness, masculinity and femininity that we are expected to have that goes with them. And so part of gender is the label, the gendered thing that you are or that you are understood to be. Then part of gender is a verb. So things are gendered. Um, one of the things that I've written a lot about is the ways in which war crimes express gendered relationships between states. So the pictures of the American soldiers who were abusing the prisoners in Iraq in 2003 and 2004, when you look at those pictures, you see feminization. You see American soldiers feminizing Iraqi prisoners of war. So their gender as a verb is uh, emasculation, masculinization, feminization, things like that. And those don't necessarily map onto maleness and femaleness. I think Catherine McKinnon once said that Uh, feminization happens to everyone. It's only that we assume that it's natural that it happens to women. Um, And that stuck with me for a long time. And then gender is also a logic and understanding of hierarchy, what traits and ideas uh, we organize, how and why. So a good example of that is, uh, I, I don't know if you remember, in the 2008 presidential campaign, maybe the 2000, not the 2008, yeah, 2008 presidential campaign, uh, when Hillary Clinton cried. Um, and the first question that all of the media were asking was, do you want an emotional woman with her finger on the button? Mm-hmm. Uh, to which they were referring to the button, which does not exist, so that the American president in theory has to blow up the world. Um, and at first, campaign staffers and kind of everyone on Hillary Clinton's team, like everyone else in the world, kind of said, well, she's not really emotional. She hasn't done this her whole career. It was just like a bad day and leave it alone, right? And when you think about that, and, and I think that that's an intuitive response to that question, my thinking was, then you go home and you think, do you want somebody emotional with their finger on the proverbial button? Well, absolutely. It would scare the crap out of me if somebody had the ability to blow up the whole world and didn't think about the gravity 
that taking that many lives would entail, right? And didn't think of them as people and as lives and with empathy. And so we have this understanding of the values associated with masculinity as better values for war and security and political leadership, even when they might not be. And that's what gender as a logic is about. And then from, that's a very helpful kind of heuristic for thinking through what gender means. And then another very broad question that you can answer however you like is kind of thinking about the book uh, more generally, what does it mean then to address war and conflict from a gendered perspective and or from a feminist perspective? Yeah, what's always spoken to me is actually a very, very long time ago, Spike Peterson and Anne Runyon used the term gendered lenses. And that makes sense to me, the idea that you're looking for gender. And when you look for gender, you find gender, but you also find all sorts of other things. So I think that we all, I guess that I have kind of Patrick Jackson's modest understanding of knowledge, which is that you can't break it from the person who's doing the knowing. And when we're doing the knowing, we all have kind of lenses and perspectives, some of which we admit and some of which we don't. And I think gendered lenses is a way to admit, you know, this is my priority. This is what I'm thinking about. This is what I want to know about, which doesn't mean you neglect the other things you find. But it does mean that you look for gender, gendered power, gender dynamics, gendered logics as you're looking at war and conflict. And I found that that shows a lot of stuff that was invisible to other sorts of analysis with other lenses. And some of my favorite mentors as an undergrad are structural realists. And I think they see a lot of useful things in war and conflict. But I think they see almost none of the stuff that I see when I look for gender with gendered lenses. Um, and I think that that's kind of why it's an important perspective to me. Is when you look at war and conflict, you ask... Where are the women? Where is femininity and masculinity? Where are emasculation and feminization? And that's kind of what my work tries to do. So then one of the things in the first chapter that you make a point and strikes me as a particularly feminist point, that we need to think not just about war as this kind of self-contained entity, but think of it in a broader sense and think about it in relation to war and conflict more broadly so could you perhaps say why there's this emphasis on talking about war and conflict and what the particular kind of feminist move that that's making is? Well, I think that that's inspired by a lot of kind of the early feminist IR that suggested that, that wars aren't things that begin and end with the first shot and the last shot. Uh, the, the tension and the conflict and the post-war work, uh, the post-war impacts like continue and continue to affect people's lives and sometimes affect people's lives even more than the actual fighting of the conflict in different places around the world. Betty Reardon way back in the day uh, kind of has this juxtaposition of sexism and the war system where sexism is fundamentally violent and compared to war. And then she argues that war's underlying logics are fundamentally sexist. And while there's a lot about how she thinks about gender that I'm not sure that many of us would be comfortable with 30 years later, I do think that fundamentally I believe the underlying point. And so I'm interested in seeing not only where war happens while it's going on that you haven't paid attention to, but also where war happens 
a before and after that you haven't really paid attention to. Um, I, what I don't want to do is kind of securitize everyday life. Uh, I've recently been writing a little bit about the idea, the pros and cons of the idea of everyday terrorism. Um, and I think that the pro of that is that it really highlights people suffering in everyday domestic violence. But I think the con of it is who's the counter-terrorist in your house, right? Um, so I don't want to say that we have, like, the military go fix the post-war injury care labor. On the other hand, I do think that it's really important to point out that the post-war injury care labor is part of the war and taxing and taxing in ways that are fundamentally gendered. Right. Now, you mentioned it a little bit when you were talking about being mentored by structural realists and <laughs> your undergraduate, um, but could you maybe kind of give a broad gloss before we kind of start then move into the, a lot of the details of the book itself, what some of the ways are that more traditional theories in IR do and do not um, address gender? You know, I think that different people do it different ways, right? Um, I have this uh, totally stuck in my head where we had a panel on gender insecurity at ISA a couple of years ago, and Mike Desch was on it um, voluntarily, I'll tell you. Um, and he started his remarks with, I like sex, but I don't like gender. Um, and suggested that the only thing useful about thinking about gender was to figure out what body fits in what cockpit. Um, which he said, not, not ironically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a lot of people like that. A lot of people who find gender to be irrelevant. And they'll tell you their work is gender neutral, not gendered. Um, which I think is one of the fundamental problems, and I talk about this a lot kind of in print in several places. Um, but I think that there are ways in which both feminisms can contribute to traditional theories in IR, and IR theories can contribute to how you think about feminism and gender. Um, Lisa Prugel's feminist constructivism might be a good example of that. Um, but I still don't think there's a whole lot of overlap, actually. Um, which is very strange given both the transformative language with which feminism was introduced to IR and kind of the number of traditional IR theorists who have explicitly endorsed the idea of feminism. Right. right? Um, but I don't think that that's added up to a whole lot of cross-pollinization. Um, and I think that that's a really kind of interesting political outcome that might make one think about the politics of the discipline. Of course. Now, another question that came to me then is what, what then are the gendered aspects of a lot of supposedly gender neutral work? I mean, what kind of work does that do do to reproduce or create kind of narratives of gender that then feminist IR is involved in interrogating and problematizing? You know, I think that one of the things that's kind of strange about not only disciplinary IR, but the way that people kind of think about standards of knowledge and achievement is that, more generally, is that those standards of what counts as good knowledge and what counts as good scholarship, they were made and mostly remain the same at a time when academia generally and disciplinary political science specifically was all white men. And 
the idea is apparently that you can add women to that and add gender analysis to that without changing it, which is ludicrous to me. That is that I think that what the most gendered thing about disciplinary IR is that it thinks that the standards with which it was founded weren't gendered. And, you know, my introduction to feminist IR came at least in part through feminist philosophy of science, right, which suggests, uh, and this is quick shorthand and wouldn't pass in a philosophy class, <laughs> but which suggests that the very understanding of the progress of scientific knowledge per se is not only gendered but violent towards women and femininity and probably violent on racial lines too. Right? Like, and you can say that 150 times until you're blue in the face at the American Political Science Association, and it doesn't matter. And I think that that's something that is especially difficult for integrating gender concerns into traditional knowledge in the discipline. Because I'm not saying that you can't run a regression about something and it have a sense of feminist consciousness. I think there are some people who would say that, but I'm not one of them. But I think what I am saying is that it usually doesn't. And it usually doesn't because our standards of what counts as and what signifies good knowledge are so fragile already that we actually sit there and police them pretty hardcore at the edges. Right. And I think that that's actually the most gendered thing about how IR works. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's something that strikes me as very difficult also to relate to undergraduate students. I mean, I found that very kind of uh, unspoken, unthought through assumption on behalf of my students when I was teaching a couple of weeks ago. Um, and Tickner's piece on Morgenthau and the gendered politics of realism, that that particular block was a really ob obstacle that I should have known was going, was coming, but I wasn't quite ready to, uh, to think about in, in advance of the class itself. Well, you know, I got an evaluation from a student five or six years ago and I, I, I kept it and I put it on my wall in my office because I, the evaluation says Dr. Schoberg assigns too many women just because they're women. Mm. And I had actually never taken account of the gender balance of my syllabus before, and it was my international security undergrad class. And I went back and I counted, and my syllabus was 18% women, mm. which is too many women because they're women, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that, you know, there are two ways to think about that. One is, well, I'd like a higher evaluation from that student, so maybe I shouldn't wear my feminist stripes on my sweater or pajamas or whatever I wear to work that day. But, like... I think the way that I thought about it is, like, a world in which it's natural for an 18-year-old to say it's too many women when it's less than 20% is a world that isn't going to change a whole lot when that 18-year-old grows up. Mm -hmm. And I think that in some way I want a worse evaluation from that student because I want to make that student uncomfortable and make them think about why they don't think that women belong in international security. Right. Which is, I think, a way perhaps for me to move into talking some about the specifics of the book. And as we turn to the second chapter of the book, where you ask, you know, one of the classic questions of where are the women, which is in part a response to the ingrained invisibility of women in histories and theorizations of war and conflict. So 
once we start to ask the question, where are the women? What do we start to see? Well, I think that there are so many different places to ask the question, where are the women that you have to kind of almost narrow that down before you find any. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So the example that I use in that chapter of the book is the example of the movie Saving Private Ryan. Um, which is kind of, I actually show that movie in my security class for a completely different reason, uh, which is that, I don't know if you find this, but the particular area of the country that I live in, uh, there's a lot of students who are pretty heavily pro-war, um, and they take international security class, essentially, to learn to make good war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had always found that they had no idea what war looked like at all. And so I use Saving Private Ryan in class to kind of, like, actually give them some sense of how grotesque war is, even though I don't think that it scratches the surface. I think it's grosser than most things that they watch, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think those of them that had seen the movie before kind of weren't paying attention to the general grotesqueness of the war scenes, right? So when I show it to them together in a classroom of 70 people, most of them get uncomfortable and leave. Um, and I kind of do that on purpose and I let them leave. But one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting as I was, I was actually watching the movie kind of in class while I was thinking about this chapter. And I was thinking, you know, here's this movie that's in theory all about a woman, right? Um, that is the woman who needs her last son saved. But then there are no women in the movie. And it's because I think that the biggest place you find women in war is as its constitutive others that justify its existence but are seen as outside of it. Right? All that fighting needed to happen for the woman. And the mother is the one who justifies it. And then the wife at the end of the story is the one who tells him that he's earned the justification. And so women are the people who tell you that you're the brave citizen warrior. But that's kind of your understanding of their role in war. So I think that that's one of the places that you find women the most is as war's justifications but patently kind of kicked out of the war narratives, even when they're in the war. Right. And so then from there, the chapter goes on to kind of talk through and analyze the, what do you call the chronology of war and think about the different ways that women are a part of it and different places we might find women. So could you maybe focus on one of those places that you work through in that chapter and as a way to exemplify what it means to think about and start to theorize war from asking the question, where are women in this chronology of war and conflicts? I think the most interesting one, and to be honest, the one that I'm weakest at, is thinking about war economies. Um, I think that when you look at almost every conflict, you see the economy radically transforming, it radically transforming in very gendered ways, And those gendered economic transformations being one of the biggest ways that war impacts everyday people's lives, and those impacts are gendered. And I think one of the kind of unfortunate side effects 
of using the term feminist security studies a decade ago was to kind of separate feminist security studies from feminist political economy um, in a way that I think then possibly only tells you part of the story. Because I think a lot of where women are in war are the people who are not getting enough calories because they're trying to feed their kids or the people who used to have a job and don't have a job anymore because the war economy stopped it or the people who didn't have a job and now have to have a job because somebody's got to do some job that has been abandoned by soldiers um, where the infrastructure happens, domestic violence rates go up significantly, at least in part due to economic crisis in, the, in times of war. Um, and there's a whole lot of evidence that if you follow women's participation in war economies, you learn a lot both about what happens to women in war and what happens in war economies. And I think that you know, the kind of way that Cynthia Enloe talks about the ways in which your family's economic status can change on a dime as a result of a war, even when you felt like you were secure and your standard of living was okay, is one thing that is really important to pay attention to. And another thing that is really important to pay attention to is kind of the ways in which war disrupts traditional family orders. But then at the end of war, the idea of restoring order gets extended to restoring traditional family orders. So there's some sense in which what happens to women kind of in the household economy during war is at least in part giving them new roles and different things to do, which then often in post-war situations, uh, when you the people who are trying to end the conflict are also trying to end all of the disruptions that it caused. And sometimes those disruptions are women's non-traditional roles. We move on to talk a little bit about chapter three, or maybe a lot about chapter three. Um, now contrary to the way talking about gender as a phrase or something might be used simplistically, it's not just talking about women, but also talking about men and masculinity. So what is the one of the phrases that you use in the chapter? Um, what does it mean to view men in war specifically as men? Well, you know, I think that the flip side of thinking of men and masculinity as the standard and, you know, kind of even when I was talking about philosophy of science, the standards set by men for men, right? I think that the consequence of that is that you then think about that as ungendered, right? Like if the baseline is uh, a male soldier, then that just is a soldier. So when you have women soldiers or women terrorists or women war criminals, you say that, right? But when you have male soldiers or terrorists or war criminals, you just call them soldiers and terrorists and war criminals because you assume that they're men. But the problem with that intellectually is that then you're not getting purchase on the work that masculinity does in producing the ways in which soldiers and terrorists and war criminals and other people in the security arena become who and what they are and come to fight the ways that they do. 
So a lot of the examples that I use in the chapter suggest that it's not a coincidence that men are being the 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 war's planners or war's heroes or war's disgraced villains that they're men. In fact, it's that constructions of masculinity position them in a way to make them such. That is, we're not just creating the female constitutive other to war. We're also creating the male that has that constitutive other. And so I think it's really important to think about the, the work that masculinity does in making war possible. Right. And maybe so we can think about that specifically for a second. One of the things you're interested in in this chapter is, um, is the centrality of masculinity in motivating people to fight wars in the first place. Could you maybe discuss some how that works? Sure. Um, so a lot of the literature on strategy and military recruitment suggests, and it's pretty clear on the fact that most people who fight in mass armies don't want to fight, don't want to kill, and don't want to die, right? Like, there are some people who join the military because it's a legal way to kill people. There are some people who are really just that patriotic and just that enthusiastic and kind of want to go out there. But the average soldier is somebody who isn't that crazy about the whole killing and dying industry, right? And so... The question is, how do you get that guy? And, you know, for a long time it was just a guy, right? How do you get that guy to fight and to fight well and to fight with honor and to, you know, kind of kill people when you need him to and things like that? Um, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the linking of citizenship and a sense of militarized masculinity where it's your duty as a man to go to war to protect your family because war is about protection and what chivalrous men do is protect the innocent feminized other back home. So if you're not fighting the war, you're not doing your duty as a man because you're not protecting your state or your country or your family. Right. And I think that that, Logic is actually a lot of why a lot of soldiers fight. And I think that you can see things like the upsurge in joining the U.S. military post 9-11. And a lot of the people who were asked why they did that at that time said, I want to protect my home. Right. Which was not the same as saying, I want to protect the women and children back home. But in a lot of ways, it was because it played to this gendered logic of what almost 30 years ago, Gene Elshane called the just warrior and the beautiful soul, right? Like that the way that you have full masculinity is providing protection and real men either actually provide protection or could provide protection if called on. And if you can't or don't provide protection, then that's a problem for the masculinity to which you should aspire. And I think that that, does a lot of work in motivating people to fight wars. It also does a lot of work in motivating people to support people who fight wars, right? That is the, the idea that you're going to fight a war for protection, for protection for your family, for protection for your country, is a nice idea, a positive idea. You want to support that guy. You don't want to go support the guy who's fighting the war because he likes to kill people or for oil or something like that. 
Um, in fact, not everybody wants to support the war that's being fought for, you know, the country's greatness. Uh, but protection is a cause that sells almost universally. And it sells not only to the protected, that is the people who cause the support, but also to the potential protector. Because who doesn't want to be a protector? And I think that that logic literally makes war possible. It makes there be enough people to fight wars. Right. Now, if, you know, if a gendered lens or a feminist lens allows us to see that, one of the other things allows us to see that you discuss in this chapter is the relationship between masculinization and feminization in wartime sexual violence. So could you maybe talk some about how you see masculinity operating there? Sure. You know, I think that there's this assumption that conflict sexual violence is something men do to women. And while the majority of cases that's certainly true, uh, there's plenty of conflict sexual violence that uh, men do to men or that women do to men or that women do to women. Um, in fact, that's becoming increasingly common. Um, and there's a lot of thinking through gender lenses about conflict sexual violence. A lot of it's great, very sophisticated, and I don't want to take anything away from the ways that people think about it. The one that speaks the most to me is the way that conflict sexual violence is about the protection racket. It's about the way it's about stopping the other side from being able to make a claim of protection to their feminized others. Right. Um, so I wrote a little bit about this several years ago with Jessica Pete, but kind of, I've made the argument that we've looked and spent a lot of time looking at what the just warrior, beautiful soul relationship does in domestic politics. Right, how it creates male citizen warriors, how it constitutes women as beautiful souls. We've never thought of that as having an international audience. But people are watching from other places, seeing, hey, look, this is how there's a sense of protection for the feminized other that's motivating fighting. And when they look from outside of one state to see that, well, Clausewitz would tell you that there's your target, right? Like if the war is fought to protect the innocent kind of constitutive other, then if you want to win the war, if you want to end the war, well, that's who you kill. And a lot of scholarship has suggested that intentional civilian victimization happens in an impressive percentage of wars and conflicts, given that it is clearly illegal in international law. Right, It happens in about 30% of interstate wars, and it's a little higher outside of it. And so the question to me isn't, why does that happen? The question is, how do we not relate it more often to demonstrating the inability to protect? Because I think that the feminization of the enemy happens in a couple of different places in conflict sexual violence. Right, One is in the demonstration that you can't protect your women. And then another is in the derision that comes from the ability to violate sexually. So one of the places that this struck me the most was actually looking at uh, World War II posters in the Soviet Union and Germany. There was a, 
an exhibit at the Chicago Museum of Art a couple of years ago that I got to go see. Um, and one of the things that struck me kind of that I remember the most is uh, there was the very last Nazi poster uh, right before uh, the surrender and Hitler killing himself and things like that. And it was maybe a day or so before. And what it says on it is don't let the red beast rape our women. Right. As if that would be the ultimate signifier of defeat and the thing that makes it even worse than surrendering and killing yourself. But the ironic thing about that was clearly that was a shared understanding with the Soviet troops because that's exactly what happened. Right. Like, and it's not like they read the sign and thought, Hey, that's a good idea. It's that that was the communication of ultimate defeat coming from the Soviet Union too. Right. And I think one of the things that tells you a lot about how you think about men, masculinity and, emasculation in war is the times that there's broad agreement on these issues across otherwise very different kind of group settings and ideologies. And I think that that's something that I want to pay more attention to is the ways in which the shared understanding of conflict sexual violence as feminization and as the failure to protect and therefore emasculating the enemy. I think that's a pretty universally shared understanding that we don't talk about a whole lot. Right. Now, in chapter four of the book, um, you uh, make the turn. You said earlier in our conversation that um, one of the goals that you had in this book was to bring together (coughs) theory and queer theory um, and international relations. And chapter four is one of the more explicit uh, ways that you do this. And so maybe we can, you could tell us some about how practices and discourses of security and war rely upon and reinforce a strict dichotomy of gender sex, and then how they also render trans and genderqueer bodies as dangerous to some sort of order. You know, I think that... One of the ways that kind of this link is easy for me to make is what I see happening in war is that gendered orders that were pre-war or peacetime or whatever that might mean are interrupted in various ways, some positive for women, some negative for women, um, such that gender relations become disordered in war and conflict, right? And then there's a sense that post-war you're supposed to reorder uh, gender relations, make them make sense again, make them, make them fit. And I think that that produces an association between ordered gender relations and safety. So, for example, when airport security harasses for what I see is absolutely no reason, pretty much anyone who has a body that doesn't look exactly like a boy body or a girl body, at first, I thought they were doing it out of transphobia, and and I don't, and I think that's important not to discount. But I also think the more I read about it, the more I read airport security talking about it, the more it seemed to me like the fundamental sense was an association of ordered gender and safety, right? Like 
if you know anything in the world, it's that there are people who are boys and people who are girls. And when that's disordered, then everything else is disordered. That's the only real data we can collect about people other than their name and their birthday. And names are unreliable, right? So, like, it was, it's a sense that, like, if gender isn't reliable data, then there's no reliable data in the world, and then it's not safe. And I think that thinking about it like that is really important for thinking about the ways in which discourses of trans bodies and genderqueer bodies as dangerous come into international security. Because I think that, so there was for a long time this uh, sense that, well, maybe a man pretending to be a woman is going to pretend to be pregnant and carry suicide bombs, um, which I don't think has actually ever happened. But I think that now there's kind of a vaguer sense of like what it is that might be dangerous. And I think that the danger is actually kind of perceived as the danger is perceived as, well, if things don't fall into this mold, this thing that we understand, then we don't understand them and things we don't understand are dangerous. And I think that that's something that's really important to pay attention to kind of as you think about what I like to call gender diversity in war and conflict is that you add another layer to the war and conflict, which is the sense of the danger of unsettled gender orders. So what I said in the book was that trans people's implied danger can be found in a combination of the uncertainty of the observer, right? Like, Mm -hmm. what is that person? Uh, The assumption that, like, you could figure that out if you just knew what parts the person had. But also an association of the refusal to fit in a gender category as associated with deception and therefore danger, right? Like, so... The idea is that if you're not a boy or a girl, then you're lying to somebody because you've got to be a boy or a girl. So then if you're lying about being a boy or a girl, what else are you lying about? Are you going to blow us up? Um, which I think the reason that I'm interested in this concept of gender orders is I, I'd, I'd like to think I don't think people are that stupid. <laughs> right? Like, I'd like to think that there's more to it because I don't think that I've met anyone who would really make that assumption if you'd lay it out like that. But at the same time, that's practiced every day all around the world in important ways, right? Like that is the, not only in airports or in militaries, but in across the security arena, um, there's always this kind of need for the lack of gender ambiguity I mean, Heather Roth is writing about how, like, war bots are getting sexes and genders because, God forbid, they don't have any, right? Like, and I'm like, I cannot imagine why a war robot would need a sex or a gender, except that, like, this is something that is getting somewhat, like, kind of this intractable thing that people have a sex or a gender, and if you can't know it, then they're not people, and and... Warbots are now among the things we need to have that kind of controllable thing about people. Right. And this concept of gender order goes in a lot of places in this chapter. And one of the <coughs> places that you take it 
I was hoping you could talk to us about here is the way that it complicates and kind of rethinks Kenneth Waltz's account, specifically maybe how it complicates the way that he talks about the international system or the characteristics of states in the international system. You know, a couple of years ago, I went back and read Theory of International Politics again, which I hadn't done since, like, my freshman year in college, right? And there's this one line in it that kind of struck me over and over again. And it's, like, Waltz's introductory justification for assuming anarchy, right? Where he's gone through this literature review of, like, God knows how many, like seven or eight different paradigms and organizational theory at the time, most of which I didn't know existed and, to be honest, sound better than liberal IR. (laughs) But, like, you know, so he gets through all of those, and then he says that when you look for structure in the international arena, you come face-to-face with the invisible, which must mean it doesn't exist, which makes it anarchy. And I just thought about the crazy difference between the way Walt sees the world and the way I do, because I get to, you come face to face with the invisible. So where are the invisible power relations? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, because in my life, there are dozens of structures that are invisible and very few that are visible. Right. Um, And I think that that is something that, you know, I'd like to think actually, and, and I had a brief conversation with him before he died about this. I'd like to think that if Waltz thought about the possibility of invisible structure, he might have thought about some of the things that he thought about differently. Um, and that's one of the things I try to do is I try to say, well, like, what if, you know, the structure exists, you just can't see it? And what if part of that structure is the gendered order between people, between states, and in the international arena. And so, like, Waltz has these three standards by which you can judge if structure exists, all of which, by the way, would totally fail positivist IR's test now (laughs) because they're all, like, visible effects, but not, like, but you couldn't tell that they were effects in any sort of quantitative or, or even case study sort of way, right? Um, but he says that it organizes uh, relative capacities of units. Uh, it organizes the ways that units are identified, and then it organizes how they relate. And I think there's a compelling case to be made that particular orders of gender organize state identity, relative capacity distribution between states, and the ways that states relate. And I try and make that argument kind of in a fuller way in uh, the Gender and Global Conflict book, which uh, is a year older than this book. Um, But I think that it's really important to think about the ways in which gender serves as a structural constraint in the international arena. Can you maybe give us an example along one of Waltz's characteristics of how that works? Uh, Sure. Um, so one of the things that, like, I think uh, I, I used in the book uh, Anna Pratt and Sarah Thompson's work on Canadian border officers, right? Um, and they were talking about guards that were motivated by chivalry and a sense of protection, but what they were actually doing was racial profiling, right? Um, and one of the 
ways that they try to make sense of this um, and that, that I suggest we make sense of this is that in the international arena, there are proxies that we use for danger which are gendered and raced. So when a state constitutes itself as the uh, protector of its citizens in a social contract sort of way, right, then that protection that it provides can never be absolute and can never be perfect, so it works on a bunch of shorthands. And often the shorthands are gender and race specific in ways that would only make sense if you understood that both gender and race are proxies for safety in the international arena. So that's kind of Waltz's third point about the system, which is that it relations among states are constituted by, you know, classifications in the structure, right? So the classification in the structure of a particular gender and race configuration as dangerous then is impacting the ways in which Canadian border guards, and let's be honest, most border guards, uh, decide who's allowed in the country and who's not, which then has constitutive and ripple effects on the ways that countries relate. Right. And if we move in now to cha- talk some about Chapter 5, where you kind of bring the work that you've been doing in the book so far together to re-theorize and re-characterize what war is or how we can conceptualize it. So I was hoping you could maybe briefly run us through the three different uh, kind of re-theorizations or components of your re-theorization of what war is, about it being a continuum, about it being experiential and felt, and about thinking of war histories as gendered histories. I think the continuum point is kind of the one that I made earlier, right? Which is the war doesn't start when the shooting starts or end when the shooting ends, um, both of which actually don't happen when the policymaker decides that they did, right? Um, one of the best examples to that is that uh, on Wikipedia and in a whole lot of different histories of the war between the U.S. and Iraq, it suggests that the U.S. war in Iraq started in 2003, um, when in the 1990s uh, the U.S. bombed Iraq uh, more than they bombed Western Europe in World War II. Right. Um, But that's not war because the war wasn't going on. Um, And I think that there are, you know, clear examples like that and then less clear examples like the kind of legacy of how conflict structures families and things like that. Um, So I think that the continuum approach is really important to kind of think about where women and gender are in war. The experiential approach, I think, is something that feminist work has been doing really well recently and and deserves a lot of attention. Um, I hadn't really thought about it uh, it, until seven or eight years ago when uh, a feminist scholar named Ronnie Alexander was giving a talk and asked what war tastes like. Um, And as somebody who's never really been anywhere near a war zone at the time, I, I, I kind of reacted like, what sort of question is that? Right? It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but I was sitting next to Ann Tickner, who's my PhD advisor, who uh, lived through World War II in Britain. Um, and she kind of involuntarily muttered under her breath the word potatoes. 
And I asked her about it later and was like, what, war tastes like potatoes? And she said, well, I was young enough that I didn't really understand a lot of what was going on. But I remember for literally years not eating anything but potatoes. Um, and the more I talked to people who had kind of, who were about her age and had survived World War II, the more actually that was a fairly common experience, right? Um, and that, I think, you know, is meaningful not just because you don't think about when you first think about the war, the fact that everybody ate potatoes, but I think that sensed experience about war tells you more about war than thinking that it's not sensed, both in terms of interested knowledge and scholarship and in terms of kind of how war works. Uh, one of my favorite pieces to assign to undergrads is Steve Walt's Renaissance of Security Studies piece, which was written after the end of the Cold War and before the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, I partly assign it because most of my undergrads don't know such time existed. <laughs> uh, but there's this uh, part of it that talks about the importance of disinterested knowledge or making your knowledge as disinterested as humanly possible. Um, and the example that's in that part of the article is that you should study nuke deterrence in a disinterested way. And I thought about it and I thought, none of us are disinterested in like whether or not there ends up being a massive atomic weapons war, right? Like everybody would prefer not to get nuked when they grow up. Um, and different people have different understandings of how that might happen. Right. But like, it's not like you can be disinterested in getting nuked. Right. Um, it's not like any of the scholars who are writing about nuke deterrence are going to like be high enough security that you get to be underground and not get nuked if you get nuked. Right. Or something like that. Um, and so I think that sense and experience is really important in thinking about war and also in thinking about studying war. The gender history kind of understanding is actually a phrase that I originally kind of talked about and thought about with Cynthia Enlow um, as she was thinking about kind of the different gender phases of different wars. And I think that if you think about war histories as histories of the ways in which gender impacts and wars, then you see stuff that you didn't see before. And so there's this uh, kind of consensus in security studies that you, if you're going to have a theory of security, you have to explain World War One, right? Um, and the part of World War One that I think takes a lot of gender analysis is the time between the ceasefire and the peace treaty where the British embargo of Germany remains in place. And there's actually a pretty strong debate between the British government and the U.S. government about whether or not this is a good idea. Um, in the U.S., it was Herbert Hoover as the chair of the U.S. Food Administration. And Hoover argues that the Germans surrendered before they had to in order to get food to their women and children. Uh, so you damn well better feed them. And the argument coming out of the British government is, yeah, they surrendered before they had to so that their women and children got to eat, which is why you shouldn't feed them, because you want to show them absolute defeat, right? Um, 
I think Hoover wins that argument at the end of the day. But it's another thing where the agreement, the agreement that there's a gendered logic to why a group is fighting or not is the interesting part. And I think that that's what feminist-informed histories might tell us. And then as we turn to the final chapter of the book, um, you use kind of the idea of gender mainstreaming, um, coming mostly out of the policy and international organization and NGO realm to argue that we need to think about gender mainstreaming when we theorize uh, study war and conflict. So maybe could you briefly tell us the kind of the context that that phrase comes out of and then how you envision that should happen or could happen with regards to study of war and conflict? You know, I think that phrase is kind of peppered in a lot of interesting ways, right? It kind of comes out of a policy world understanding where a lot of people think that it means add more women, uh, which it doesn't or isn't meant to. Um, And I'm not sure that I would have used the word in kind of a purely scholarly book. Uh, But I used it in this book because I thought that it had play with the various audiences that it might kind of come to. And what I was kind of interested in, like... I mean the term literally, right? Like, like if you think about war and conflict and you don't think about gender, then you're not doing a good job, so stop that. Um, and that's kind of what I want to get at using the term. On the other hand, there's a lot of different ways you can think about gender, many of which are less effective. I think that a lot of the work that suggests that uh, – men make war because they don't get enough sex um, really has very little empirical justification and does a lot of damage to understanding both masculinity and femininity, right? So it's not just think about gender. It's think about gender in complicated ways as the noun, the verb, and the logic to kind of see a broader picture. Right, and... Well, maybe one more question that comes up kind of both in Chapter 5 and Chapter 6, and that is this idea of thinking about gender war systems as an approach to understanding war and conflict. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about what you mean by that term and kind of the implications of that vis-a-vis this idea of gender mainstreaming in our study of war and conflict? You know, to me, I think... I want to make the argument, and I beat around the argument a whole lot, but I want to make the argument that war, the gender, the gendered structures of international politics make war possible. And that war then reifies and reconstitutes the rigidity of the structure of gender in global politics. And I want to make that argument in a non-essentialist way. Mm-hmm. That is, I don't want to be Betty Reardon kind of and say women are nonviolent, men are violent, look at the men making the wars. But I do want to say without particular notions of gender and gender roles and the responsibilities that particular gender roles give people in states, you can't really imagine the viability of war as a concept. And so when I suggest mainstreaming gender conceptually in war and conflict, I mean thinking about the ways that gender makes war possible 
and then the ways that gender operates in war and war operates in gender. Right. Thank you. Now, you've been very generous with your time, but before I let you go, I was wondering if there's anything we haven't discussed that you'd like to highlight for the audience. Um, I don't think so. I think that one of the things that kind of I'm attached to about this book is thinking about the ways it's chapter four, right? It's thinking about the ways that gender matters, even when it's not directly attached to boy and girl bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, if this book has a contribution to make, I really want it to be that that becomes readable for a larger audience. Right. And is that nutritional last question here on new books is to ask you what you're currently working on. Is that part of kind of projects that are ongoing for you right now? Um, it is. I just uh, finished a forum that's a retrospective on Cindy Weber's Faking It mm-hmm. um, that thinks about whether whether and how that book predicts or explains uh, U.S. Cuba reproachment um, and also kind of other ways in which states make claims to identities now. Uh, I've been doing a fair amount of work in queer IR, queer evolutionary theory, things like that. Um, I guess to me, I've always been interested in breaking down mine and other people's assumptions about what constitutes proper particular gender roles. And kind of along that lines, I just finished a book on uh, women's conflict sexual violence. It's called Rape Among Women. And it kind of builds off of my work on women's violence to make the argument that women aren't equally capable as men and better than them all at the same time. Uh, and that our various political, legal, moral, and media systems aren't all that well equipped to deal with women's conflict, sexual violence. All right. Thank you. Well, I certainly will. And I imagine the audience too will be on the lookout uh, for more of that. So Laura Schoberg, thank you so much for joining us on new books in global ethics and politics. Thank you for having me. 